Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support the Other People Show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. Hello. Hello. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Program. It's good to be with you. And uh, I'm in Los Angeles. Where are you at? Can you tell me? Where are you? I have Ashley Wurzbacher on the program today. She is a uh, 535 nominee, or honoree, I should say. Not even a nominee. She's an honoree. You know what I mean? She got it. She's, fi- she's one of five uh, writers under the age of 35 honored by the National Book Foundation this past year. She is also uh, the author of a story collection called Happy Like This. It's available from the University of Iowa Press, and it is the winner of the John Simmons Iowa Short Fiction Award, selected by Carmen Maria Machado, a past guest uh, on this program. So, an auspicious debut for Ashley Wurzbacher, Uh, And it was great to meet her here at the dawn of her career, get to know her a little bit. And I'm excited to share the conversation with you right now. So this is Ashley Wurzbacher, and her story collection, once again, is called Happy Like This. It's kind of near Ohio, like an hour south of Erie, Lake Erie, and two and change hours north of Pittsburgh in the woods is it an amish country that's not yeah it is yeah yeah did you grow up seeing amish people yeah often there are some amish people in my book actually in one of the stories um and yeah they they party hard which is one thing that i feel like people don't know um the amish party yeah like younger um amish yeah like when they're in their sort of period of exploration like deciding if they want to remain Amish. Um, yeah, I have a character that goes to an Amish party in a field. Um, but yeah, and you would see the buggies on the road. And um, for a while, 
they didn't put like reflective lights on the backs of the buggies and so there would kept there kept being accidents where you know cars would would hit them and then fairly recently like i mean recently in the sense of like um like in the course of my lifetime they had to put reflective lights on the back of the buggies so they would be safe on the roads at night what was that was it like a no technology kind of thing yeah so mm-hmm. they don't want to have reflective lights because i guess they didn't but they do now and my mom is an er nurse and she often takes care of amish patients in the hospital i have a good buddy from college who grew up in lancaster pennsylvania Mm -hmm. yeah so that's kind of touristy amish country i mean they're like they're real but um it's where sort of people go to like observe that lifestyle i guess and so where i lived was much more like it was just like part of the backdrop and people weren't going out of their way to come see it it was just sort of naturally there did you have amish friends no, um, but we would like buy produce or things from we have a lot of my parents have a lot of Amish furniture in their house. And so, yeah. It what, was, what does Amish furniture look like? Us uh, beautiful. They're we have great craftsmanship. I don't know. Just like wooden things. But it's like traditional. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, not like, like, it's not like Scandinavian. It's not like mid-century, <laughs> like West Elm looking. Kind <laughs> yeah, of it's like, like West Elm. Sleek. A, yeah. yeah, it's a little, maybe a little chunkier. Got it. But yeah, really well made. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Amish parties tend to happen in fields. I get, yeah, I've never been to one, but okay. I know plenty of people who have. I'm fascinated by the whole Amish thing. I think most yeah. people are. Yeah. What a what a what a like unique idiosyncratic thing that continues, mm-hmm. like despite all these forces that would indicate or try to indicate otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think there's something. It's strange, but admirable. I guess there's something in it. There, I have a certain romantic idea in my head about 19th century America. Mm-hmm. That it was like a better, more literate, somehow more literate. Because when you read the like the the letters and the yeah, language, sure. it seems like everybody was smarter. Yeah. Like I watched that Ken Burns documentary about the Civil War. Right. Yes. These soldiers are writing this like be- something like far more beautiful than anything I could ever write. Yeah. And it's just like they're tossing off a letter while they're sitting in the uh, bunker or whatever. I yeah. guess that would be a place where you might find some inspiration. But do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like maybe. I don't know if it was necessarily a more literate era, but maybe literacy was more valued, perhaps. I don't know. Well, and it was the only show in town. It was like books yeah. and... Yeah. What else were you going to do? Yeah. Walk around in the woods? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Make furniture? <laughs> yeah. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature... I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, so, okay. So you grew up in the woods, you said. Yeah. So um, like, my parents live and still live in the woods. What does that mean? It means, well, we lived um, on, it was like a dirt road and just surrounded by trees. Um, couldn't quite see our neighbor's houses. Um, my sister and I played, we just like played in the forest when we were kids. One sibling? Yeah. A younger sister. That sounds great though. And she, yeah, my dad is a forester and my sister now is, she also studied forestry and she works in extension now. So they're very like tied to the forest (laughs) forever. That's awesome. Yeah. What does a forester do? Um, so he did a lot of. Well, he's done a lot of things, but a lot of it was like maintaining state game lands and like habitats for animals and like looking at deer populations. Um, and one of the really uh, kind of unusual things that he had to do, which is it's in the book, there's a character who has a father who also does this is to like, um, take like a steel jawbreaker and open the mouths of dead deer heads during deer like hunting season every year to like pry out deer teeth and use them to age the deer that have been shot to get like sort of demographic information on deer um so that was like one of the extracting deer teeth he would have to do that like once a year for a few days every year I couldn't tell you what a deer tooth looks like. I guess it just looks like a tooth. It just looks like a tooth. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm just, um, just, you just don't see their teeth, you know? Yeah. I guess they're in there. <laughs> um, well, that's cool. You know, I was reading something recently where it was like, you know, climate change, the effects of climate change could be largely mitigated if we just planted like a million more trees or whatever the number was. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of this? Yeah. I mean, trees are our friends. (laughs) Well, it just makes me think that we're going to need more foresters. Yeah. And it makes me want to plant trees like living, even living in Los Angeles where we have this constant sunshine, we need a shade canopy. Yeah, absolutely. Why why do we not plant more trees? Yeah. We Um, should all plant more trees. (laughs) I was also thinking like redwood trees are so cool. I know they grow in like limited environments, but we should plant more of those. Mm -hmm. I want more redwoods. Yeah. That's my platform. Yeah. That's a tall order. Like, ha ha. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, cause those things are, I don't know how old, like incredibly insanely old. I think they're really difficult 
in terms of like what they need. I think they have to have a specific ecosystem yeah, or environment. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I could like, you know, yeah. plant you one in my, my yard. I could ask your sister. dad. <laughs> yeah. Did they consult? <laughs> yeah, actually my dad's going to be doing, I think some consulting now. He just retired. So mm. he's now he's just sort of playing, but I think he's going to be doing some consulting. So do you, did you, you grew up in the woods? Mm-hmm. Like, are you like, what town are you near? Are you, how far away was town? Um, so town was Titusville, Pennsylvania. Um, it had, I'm guessing, I think the population was maybe like 5,000, maybe I'm wrong and I, people will be mad at me, but it was small. Um, and it was like a 10 to 15 minute drive from our house. And, um, it's claim to fame is that it was the site of the first successfully drilled oil well in, I think it was 1859. So it's the nickname of the region is the valley that changed the world, which was always just very, <laughs> I don't know, annoying to me as a young person because it felt like there wasn't a whole lot going on there. It was pretty quiet, um, kind of, um, I don't know. I, I didn't love growing up there, but. Um, you wanted to go to like a bigger city or something? Yeah. I had sort of a vague sense of dissatisfaction with my surroundings, but it wasn't an informed sense. It was like, I, I felt like I wanted to be somewhere else, but I didn't know where I didn't really even know why I just didn't feel like I quite fit in there, I guess. I've heard that from multiple guests on this show Yeah, who grew up with this just you know, sort of abstract sense of wanting to be somewhere else. Yeah. I always kind of had that. Um, and I don't know, there was sort of like big sort of like hunting and gun culture and, um, like pretty religious, pretty isolated. Um, and but you did, did you grow up hunting or anything like that? I didn't, but everyone around me did. Um, and so it was like, we didn't have school on the first day of deer season because no one would have gone to school. And we actually, when I was in fifth grade, um, wait, all the kids were out hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. You can go, I think when you're 12, something like that. Um, and when I was in fifth grade, we actually, my whole class um, went to this camp where we, for several days, we had to learn, like, take our hunter safety test. And we like shot rifles and bows and arrows. And you ever, have you ever shot they, a deer? Like, sent us into the forest with the compass and we had to find our way out. No, I haven't. But we, I mean, my grandfather had like a taxidermy deer head on his wall and, my dad has like elk antlers on his wall. So it's, it was all around me, but I was never really interested in it personally. Are you like a vegan now or anything like that? No, I just don't want to shoot anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what about literary stuff? Like ni- neither of your folks are writers or like no. writerly? Um, no, I mean, I always felt encouraged to write and be creative and read, um, but I didn't grow up around that. And I really didn't, I mean, I was pretty isolated and 
I guess I didn't really even have a sense that contemporary literature was even really being written because I would read like old stuff or like I carried around this ratty old copy of like the Barnes and Noble classics, best of Emily Dickinson. And I felt like writers were all like they lived in the 19th century in like New England or old England. Um, And I didn't, I didn't really have um, any sense of writing as a thing that real people did in the real world. Um, it just, I didn't know writers or see writers or really, um, it just wasn't around me. Well, how old were you when you were reading Dickinson? Oh, I think that was probably like middle school years. So I was very like weird and not cool. So I would carry around my poetry book and I would like read during study hall and like, um, yeah, I guess that was part of the kind of not feeling like I belonged. Did so, you have friends? Yeah, I had friends, okay. but I was like a weird, quiet kid. And then did you, I mean, it doesn't sound like you really thought of being a writer as a possibility. No, I mean, I kind of, I wanted to, but in like a very sort of uninformed, abstract, <laughs> hazy sort of way. And then what about book? I mean, you mentioned Dickinson, but what about books that um, really made an impression on you when you were young? Yeah, when I was young, I don't know. I um, I really loved any sort of books about um, sort of like smart book-loving girls in <laughs> rural areas because that was what I related to. So like I loved Anne of Green Gables and I, I loved like the little house on the prairie books and like girls writing in the middle of nowhere was kind of my, (laughs) my thing. Um, well, and your collection, uh, is very much like female centric mm -hmm. and, um, I don't know if it's all girls writing in the middle of nowhere, but it's definitely about you know, women pushing outside of the boundaries of like, of life and of, um, pushing outside of the boundaries that are set for them by society. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's true. And kind of, um, making decisions, but not always feeling sure about their decisions and measuring themselves against other women who they either perceive as like you know, having done it right or done it better or just done it differently and being kind of curious about what it would be like to live differently. Um, and I guess sort of the anxiety of choice and decision-making, which is something that really interests me, like as a woman who feels like she has choices and options. Um, like that's a fairly new thing for ladies, like historically in the grand scheme of things. And so I think there's some discomfort and doubt that comes along with that. Like I have a choice. I can choose to like not have kids and focus on my career, or I can focus to have kids and not focus on my career, but whatever I do now, I have a sense that I could have done something else. Um, when that wasn't always the case. And so choosing something is also giving something up or 
losing something. Um, and I'm really interested in that kind of contradiction. Like we want choice. Um, we want to have kind of unlimited options, but then making choices also means like closing other doors. And, um, I don't know, for me, I can kind of never, I never stop wondering like, what would have happened if I'd done this other thing or moved to this other place or, um, just done things differently. And I feel like my characters have those same sorts of tendencies. Do you have regrets? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I would say that. Um, it's more just curiosity, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that sometimes. Like if I had wanted to intensely enough, I could have just been one of these people who bums around the world taking mm -hmm. on jobs. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the fantasy in my head. If I only have like that one, like, wow, that would have been a different life. Yeah. It sounds great. Yeah. Or, you know, it can feel like a great idea when you're just imagining yourself like in some like, you know, South American town or something. Right. But then I think it's actually hard. Yeah. In practice. Yeah. I don't know. You can't spend too much time on that stuff though, because you got to live your life. Right. That, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think too, one of the things, uh, your book is doing, uh, thematically in that interests me is it's like presenting all of these different, um, I don't know, like rules for living or whatever we get presented with. A lot of mm -hmm. times we don't even think about them. Right. We sort of just go through the motions of our lives and, you know, one thing you do the things that I guess have been done before you, but ultimately when you reduce it, a lot of these things are just stories. Yeah. And you were saying that too, I think in the, the interview that I read Yeah, and it resonated with me. It's like, yeah, it's like, who's making this up? Yeah. And like, so rarely do people stop and consider the fact that they're like, what they're doing is a story or they're participating in a story. Like, this is what you do. You like go to school and then I don't know, you, you like get married and you have kids and you, you know, you do this or you don't do that. Or there's like a right way to do things. And my characters are always kind of pushing those boundaries and, um, we're finding that the script doesn't work for them, um, in some way. And is that like an extension of you as a young girl, like a bookish girl, living in a rural, rural town in Pennsylvania, feeling like you wanted to push beyond like the confines of the narrative that was given to you? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think that's probably the case. I don't know. I've moved around a lot. I've lived a lot of places. Um, and so I guess I, I kind of have this fear of like settling or really committing to a, a particular place or a particular life. Like, um, and I feel like my characters a lot of the time have a similar kind of maybe fear, um, or just, I don't know. I keep coming back to the word curiosity. I feel it feels like a little sunnier than fear. Um, but just curiosity about like what else is out there or what could I be or what could I do? Or, um, you know, what if I was more like this person or, um, less like I've, I've always thought that I, less like the person that I always thought I was I'm like, could there be another side of me or another part of me that I haven't really explored that might like better express my essence than whatever it is I've been doing so far. Like, I don't really 
see myself or my personality as like super fixed. I think of it as something that's kind of always evolving and like, I'm always kind of learning new things about myself or questioning things about myself. And, um, so I've tried to kind of write women characters who have a similar kind of fluid and complex sense of self. It's, 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 if nothing else, it seems like a useful thought exercise. Mm-hmm. Like it's a great way to sort of like try on different modes of living yeah, or like test the solidity of your thinking about certain things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I wanted my characters to be like, I don't want them to be perfect. I want them to be a little bit, um, I don't know, to have kind of a dark side or not even really dark, but just imperfect. Um, and, um, I don't know. I kind of, I tried to place them in a lot of different locations and they all have very different jobs. I wanted the stories to all be very different to kind of show some of the many possibilities of what living in the world as a woman can be and can mean. And, um, I really like to explore like different careers, different geographies. Um, I like a story collection where all of the stories feel distinct, um, and all the characters feel distinct and they, they don't all kind of sound the same. Um, so as, as opposed to like the linked collection. Where... Yeah. I mean, I think the stories are linked in the sense that they have similar thematic interests and they ask similar questions about happiness and what it means and specifically what it means for women. Um, but I want them all to feel different, like different points of view, different kind of craft techniques going on. Um, I want the readers to feel like they're getting to see a lot of different stuff, like different landscapes, different occupations and lifestyles. Um, and not like all the characters are kind of sounding the same or, um, getting into this same sort of trouble. Now it took you 10 years to write this book. I mean, Sort of. Yeah. There's a, there's a story in the book that is, uh, that I wrote in college actually, um, that's 10 years old. And, um, but I didn't always know that I was, that this was what I was working on. I've just sort of had a long story writing career and I went to school for like forever. And, um, what does that mean? It means, well, I went to college and then I did an MFA. So I was spent two years writing in Spokane, Washington. I went to Eastern Washington university. So I moved like as far away from home as I could. How did you wind up in Spokane? I just wanted to move very far away. And so I applied to a bunch of programs in the Western U S and they offered me full funding. So that's where I went. Wow. So I was there for two years and then I moved to Houston and I was there for five years in a PhD program. So I was, I had a very academic path too writer dumb. It was very like, um, lots of workshops, lots of classroom settings. And now I teach. So just school has always been a big part of my life. And the stories were born out of that experience of going through year after year of workshops in universities. I, I just, I like, I don't know, like a good student type. And I, like school is where I, it's like my happy place. It's, I'm very nerdy. 
You're a book learning person. Mm -hmm. When you moved away to Eastern Washington, Mm-hmm. Were your parents like, what are you doing? Or were they into it? Um, I mean, they've always kind of like, kind of gone along with whatever I was doing. I think sometimes they've been confused by things that I've done, but you no, know, they're very supportive. They like, we packed up the tiniest size of U-Haul and they moved me out there and, um, then like, yeah, left me there and flew home and, um, it was great. You know, my friend, uh, Ch- you know, Chelsea Martin, the writer, I don't know. No, I don't. She, she's been on the show. She's a buddy. She just had a baby and she lives in Spokane. Oh. And so I was sending her a baby gift and I started, I was like, where is Spokane? Yeah. <laughs> like I had Jess Walter on the show. Oh, I yeah. think he's a Spokane he's writer. A, yeah. A huge celebrity in Spokane. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's the, he's the, the big shot there. But I, uh, I actually Googled it. I was like, oh my God, I didn't know it was like up that far North, it's like mountain town. Yeah. And beautiful. Yeah. I I really enjoyed it. I loved living there. Is it sunny? Yeah. They actually have really nice weather. The way it's situated um, in relation to the mountains, it's, it's, it's pretty sunny. Damn. Okay. Yeah. I got to go check Spokane out. Yeah. It's a great little town. And then you go to Houston mm-hmm. and you get your PhD and mm-hmm. now you teach in Birmingham. Yes, I teach at a public liberal liberal arts college outside of Birmingham, Alabama. How do you like Birmingham? I like Birmingham. You do? Yeah. You're yeah. just checking places out. I really am. I Yeah, you can... It's... Yeah. I like kind of underrated places that um, people haven't already all agreed are cool. Um, like, I like feeling like I'm... I don't know. I found some kind of hidden gem or something. I hear that. Yeah. I feel like Pittsburgh sort of has that going on. Yeah. My family, my parents are both from the Pittsburgh area. Um, so I've spent a lot of time there and it's great. What, well, what's next? Do you have a plan or do you just, you're going to stay in Birmingham for a while? I'm there. Yeah. For the, yeah, I'm there. And, um, I don't know. I don't know what's next. It's a big question mark, but I like that. It's, I like kind of not knowing, um, and being kind of up for whatever. (laughs) Right. But it's going to be academia. Yeah, it is. I really, it feels like my natural habitat. I like, I like, I don't know, um, like (laughs) classrooms and brick buildings and like bells that chime the hour (laughs) and like (laughs) all those kinds of things. Did you like high school then too? No, I hated high school. Um, did you do well as a student? I did very well. Yeah. I was always like just very nerdy. Like I was sort of fascinated by my teachers. I always wanted to be friends with them. Cause I like, I love people who are just like, um, allowed to be excited about learning and knowing things. And like, as a student in high school is not cool to like try, you know, or like want to learn. And I did try and I did like to learn. And so I was like a weirdo. Yeah. There can be, there can be like a weird insecurity Mm -hmm. around like educating oneself or being educated. Yeah. It's it's really true. That's a weird upside down logic. Yeah, it is. We need to change that. Yeah. Like it, but it doesn't that start at home. Like like why do, why are people like that? I don't know. I don't know where it starts. Um, maybe at home. I don't know. I mean, I feel like the public discourse around education lately has just been 
I mean, like, look who our president is. Like, we, there's just sort of a culture of, like, dumbness and, like, valuing dumbness or, or, like, rejecting education out of some kind of perceived need to, like, stick it to the man. But I don't think education is the man. I think, like, the person telling us to not get educated is the man. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I guess... Um, I guess that was part of like to bring it back to like growing up and, um, my hometown, like why I didn't feel like I fit in there was, were you an angry kid? Like, were you an angry nerd? No, I would say more like more sort of sullen (laughs) than angry. (laughs) Yeah. Um, when did you know your collection was a collection? Like you were just Mm -hmm. in college, you're writing story after story, yeah. you know, eventually you start to like develop a pile of these things. Yeah. I developed a pile and I kind of, I didn't really know what it was going to be. And everyone always tells you how it's impossible to sell a story collection. And it's like, you'll never get your story collection published. Um, but I love stories and I just always loved writing them. And I wanted to be surrounded by writers and in an environment where I could hang out with other creative people and be like poor, but stimulated, I guess, creatively. Um, and so, yeah, the stories started piling up and I started to kind of, um, notice what my obsessions were. Um, and which are, yeah, just, I mean, I guess all the things I've, I've already talked about, about like women's lives, women's friendships, relationships, um, and the sort of anxiety of, um, of like having the privilege of choosing what you're going to do with your life as a woman and a lot of stuff about bodies and body image, um, and kind of unusual or just very intimate, um, relationships between women. So like best friends or sisters or like former best friends, or in one case, a dead best friend. Um, but like, I'm, I guess I'm really interested in what those relationships can offer because they're relationships that don't have the same kind of script attached to them that like marriage does. Like people think they know, like there are resources you can find to help you do marriage. Um, but, um, Like, because I've moved around a lot and I've had to kind of build my own family wherever I've moved, I haven't lived close to my biological family since I was a child. Um, So I've always been kind of meeting people and forging relationships with them that have resembled family relationships, like that they're my support network. Um, And a lot of these people have been women, and I feel like those relationships can kind of be anything. Um, I don't feel... Like there's a right way to do them. And so I'm really interested in them as material for fiction. So a lot of what you just said resonates with me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to take it piece by piece if I sure. can, re- if I can remember. Um, the first one is about this, the absurdity almost of having like so many choices. Mm-hmm. Like it's a great luxury, but can, it's also kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah. Like I think about the grocery store. You know, there's like 60 different kinds of peanut butter or whatever. Yeah. Like like this would be a lot easier if I just had one or two to choose from. But, 
you know, we sort of live in this age of, you know, this multiplicity of choices. And, um, I was having a conversation with a family member who has been going through a tough time recently and sort of like, you know, how you talk somebody down from the ledge a little Mm -hmm. bit. She was sort of like, and I go on online and people are living these great lives yeah. and they're doing this, that, and the other. And I went on LinkedIn and I was like, Oh my God, you know, but you go to Instagram right? and it's like, Oh, well this person's got their shit together. Wow. Nice vacation. And like, Oh, the fancy job. Exactly. We're always comparing ourselves to other people. Yeah. And I was just like, I was like, you got to delete it. Yeah. I think that, I guess the point that I was going to make is that I think we all feel a little bit of that. I think social media especially can, um, like throw gasoline on the fire. Yeah. It definitely exacerbates all of these things. Um, are you on social media? I am on it kind of half-heartedly. I, I like Instagram a lot. Actually, it feels like a pretty cheery space for me. Like I can, I feel like I have more control over what I see there. Um, but yeah, I'm, I loathe Twitter. Um, why? See, Twitter's my favorite one. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I, it feels, it's so like fast paced. Like those tweets just keep coming. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a little bit overwhelming. Like a zombie march. Yeah. And I'm like agonizing over my phrasing. And then I'm, you know, kind of like we talked about at the beginning, like, I don't know. Do I stand by what I just said? (laughs) Did I like, I don't know. It's like out there now. Um, and there's this pressure to be witty and punchy and, uh, I don't know. It scares yeah. me. Every time I tweet, I die a little bit. I yeah. Feel like. Yeah. And it feels like everyone's just yelling at each other. So I don't love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, it's all, I, I think it all amounts to a very large, like uncontrolled experiment on our neurology. Mm-hmm. Like there's no precedent for this. Yeah. And like, we are all on this stuff constantly mm-hmm. and we don't, really know what it's doing to us. Yeah. But my instincts tell me it's not all good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My instincts often tell me (laughs) things are not good. Not good. Yeah. Yeah. This is whatever we're doing is a species. It's not working out in our favor. Yeah. Um, so damn, I'm going to, I'm going to miss, I'm going to mess this up and not remember all the great things you were talking about. It was the comparing and the choice. Mm -hmm. What else did you say? Um, I, I think I talked about moving around a lot and like building relationships in like surrogate families sort yeah. of. Yeah. But it sounds like mostly cause this is, I've had this conversation even recently with somebody on the show. I have this envy of women and their ability to, especially as adults to form meaningful friendships. Mm-hmm. It's and great. Men don't know how to do that. I know. I, they seem to have a harder time with that. Yeah. It's sad. What's up with that? I don't know. Um, You're like, nor do I care. I don't know what's going on with them. (laughs) I have so many enriching friendships with women that I don't really spend much time worrying about men. I mean, I really do. I have enriching friendships with men too. Um, And they're also emotionally and intellectually interesting to me. I guess I just tend to focus on the ones with women um, in my writing, but... Yeah, it's like I I've so often moved somewhere where I knew no one and cobbled together a, a support network of people who've like 
seen me through hard times and like cared for me when I was sick and I've done the same for them. And you, you create this kind of family that's not your family. Um, and in some cases then you move on and like you sort of leave those people behind and start fresh somewhere else. Or that's been my experience like several times over now. Isn't it weird that when you move, like you think you're going to take everybody with you, yeah, but you can't. Yeah. That's one of the hard and weird things about being an adult. It is. You leave college. Like you just can't, it's not for lack of wanting either. It's just the nature of life. You cannot maintain. Right. Exactly. Every relationship and conversation because of the demands of life. Yeah, absolutely. And it is sad. Um, but I don't know. There's something beautiful about it, I guess. And writing about those relationships has been a way of, of kind of memorializing them in a way like some of, I feel like there are pieces of all these people that I've met and known as I've moved around, um, kind of populating the stories and I can see those echoes. Like I can see evidence of those people in the work and it's a nice way of preserving it, I guess. Cause it is hard. It's so, I mean, really impossible to keep up all of those relationships when you move on and, or other people move on and things change. It's like cryogenically freezing all of your lost <laughs> friendships. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> That's creepy, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, just before you came over here, I was like wandering around my garage and I picked up this Kurt Vonnegut essay collection. I think it's Palm Sunday. You give her like, you know, you just like put, pick a book up sort of mindlessly and start flipping. Yeah, sure. Like I was, that's what I was doing. And I picked it up and I flipped to a page and I opened it and he was writing about how human beings are bored and lonely. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how we're not wired biologically to exist in isolation and we need actually like a huge network of extended family mm -hmm. and friends to be truly happy. Mm -hmm. And then he, I think he was referencing like, you know, some cultures and I don't know if this is still the case because this was written decades ago, but he was referencing like cultures in like Nigeria or Africa or something where like people have like over a thousand relatives that they mm -hmm. know. And that when a baby is born, they travel the baby around to introduce the baby to everybody. Mm -hmm. I was like, my God. And I left home at 18, much as you did and moved away mm -hmm. from my biological family. My parents had also moved away from their biological yeah. family. They grew up in Louisiana. I was raised in Milwaukee. And then I left, you know, I also moved around the Midwest, but then went West for college. Yeah. And you know, we, we scattered mm -hmm. and I think you do lose something in that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why like you have to replace it with something else or like something needs to occupy some of that space. Um, which is why my adult friendships have been so important to me. Um, and they've all been so different and I've just learned so much from my friends. Like, like I think as a young person, I, like I mentioned reading Anne of Green Gables as a girl and I always wanted like Anne has a bosom friend, Diana. And I always wanted like this monogamous friendship where like we were best friends and we would never be parted. And like that person was all I needed. And, um, I think it's been really 
pleasurable, I guess, to like mature out of that kind of monogamous view of friendship and just let each one kind of offer something a little bit different. And, um, yeah, become like a family. Okay. So how do you do it though? You move to a new town and you've lived in Spokane. I've lived in Houston, Birmingham, Birmingham. And I also have, I lived on and off in Salt Lake city. Um, while I was in Houston, um, my partner at the time was living in Utah. So I've spent a lot of summers and winters in Salt Lake. I also briefly lived in Missoula, Montana in between my MFA and PhD programs. Um, and I went to college in a little town called Meadville, Pennsylvania. Wait, you went to college in Mead? I thought you went to college at Eastern Washington. For graduate school. Oh. For undergrad, I stayed in PA. Oh, you did? Okay. I don't know why I did that. But I had a very good college experience, but I don't know why I didn't like get the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> what did you... Uh, oh, I thought, I thought you left at 18, so you left a little bit later. Yeah, uh, 22 at the end of undergrad. Okay, so but when you move to a new place and you don't know a soul, mm-hmm. how do you make friends? I mean, I usually was in a writing program or I was, again, it was school. So school was also supplied my social network. Um, and I, I always had this kind of built in network of other creative types who were also displaced and like (laughs) hungry for friendship. And so we've kind of latched onto each other. Even when I moved and I, I started my teaching job in Alabama, I, um, I moved there at the same time as several other women around my age who'd moved from all over the country. And like, here we were in Alabama, like, and we just like, we needed each other. Um, what do you do in Alabama? I think I mean, you do most of the same things you do anywhere else. <laughs> I know, but like, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think like you, you live and work. Yeah. You hang out. Yeah. I don't do very much. I here. mean, what does anyone do anyway? Yeah. You I, know? Don't do, I don't do a damn yeah. thing. I go to the same I'm very ritualized. I don't know if you are. Maybe you sort of have to be as an adult. Yeah, I think to it's some a, extent. Yeah. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. It's me being a creature of habit, but it's also just the necessities of life. You have to, you have, to have a schedule. Mm-hmm. But I do lament the fact that my life does not include more like spontaneity and like... Yeah. Or, or planned fun. Yeah. I'm terrible. I love planned fun. I'm terrible at it though. I love to plan the fun. Planning the fun is as fun as the fun. Like, give me an example. I don't know. Just like organizing, planning a trip. Yeah. I love doing that. I do too. Yeah. I'm talking about like more like, okay, we're all going to go to this restaurant and then we're going to sing karaoke or, Oh, sure. You know, people who like genuinely like relish and having fun. <laughs> like <laughs> That sounds exhausting. Like, yeah. I'm just going to watch sports center. Yeah. Pass out. Um, so I'm trying to think of if there was anything else that I wanted to cover from like, um, earlier, I think we got it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think like the other, I guess the darker side of friendship, especially like intense friendships, you know, really like deep friendships is when they go sideways. Like it's one thing for a friendship to atrophy because of distance. Yeah. And just like the natural course of life. Yeah. But sometimes there are ruptures. Yeah. They can definitely blow up. Has that happened for you as an adult? Um, I've had, I've had some kind of heartbreaking friend breakups. Yeah. Friend breakups are interesting. Yeah. Like, cause it's, <laughs> it's almost like in some way it's like every bit as, or even sometimes more traumatic than like a romantic partner uh-huh. not working out. Yeah. 
you know, because it feels like with a friendship, it should be easier to maintain. Like, I think we all go into yeah. romantic relationships knowing that it's like delicate mm -hmm. and but, it's around the clock. Yeah. Whereas a friendship is you kind of pop in and out maybe a little more. Yeah. Yeah. But then like, I guess what happens like friends betray other, you know, you betray a friend or the friend yeah, betrays you just communication mishaps or I don't know. Or, and I feel like so much of it does have to do with just life decisions. Like, um, friends who've decided to like start families when I haven't, like, it's hard to, I'm not like, a, um, you know, like they make friends with other like baby people. And then you, you sort of aren't living the same life anymore. It's hard. Yeah. I had that happen a little bit. Like, I think you hit a certain age, like you get to like 30, especially I guess nowadays, mm -hmm. generally speaking, and people start to like get married and have kids. It seems like it's getting later. Yeah. I think but it is. At, because especially early parenthood, but parenthood in general is like so demanding. I've had friends who were not married and didn't have kids and I felt um, some anger in them that they had been like abandoned mm -hmm. and it's really not the case. The, the case is that you just have, like, have not slept in months mm -hmm. and you're like changing diapers and like, you're just like shot. Mm -hmm. And I actually had been like that too with, um, friends of mine who had gotten married and had kids. I was like, wow, you're not fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like you're passing out at 10 o'clock at night. Like what's wrong with you? And then I had a baby and I was like, oh yeah, he was fucking exhausted. But, um, you've been through that. Yeah. I mean, I have, and I've tried to be supportive of, you know, my friends with children and their kind of different needs. But I do, I mean, most of my friends now are other childless people. So, um, and that's not, not, not intentional. Not it's not like I don't, I refuse to associate with like <laughs> people with children. It's, it's just kind of how it's ended up. Like they're the ones who have the time and the interest in, you know, doing the things that, I'm interested in doing. And yeah, I don't know. I've like, I have so much anxiety also about the whole question of children. Like it seems I, I don't really see myself doing that. I don't really feel, I've never felt like an urge <laughs> or like, I don't have, feel like I have like maternal instincts really. Um, but then I also feel like lots of guilt and shame and anxiety and like, what's wrong with me? I'm supposed to feel this stirring of like maternal impulse in myself that I don't feel. And like, what's wrong with me? I'm not doing a good job being a woman. <laughs> um, so I guess that's another example of what I mean by like the, the anxiety of choice and like sort of questions that, um, I think women especially ask themselves about like, what is, what are their lives supposed to be and are they doing it right and are they doing it wrong? And like, what would that mean? Yeah. Do you have friends who have kids who are trying to push it on you? No, I think they know better. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but like, you don't, have, but it, like, even like casually, like, Oh, it's just so great. And you're like, eh. I mean, yeah, I definitely hear a lot about, how great it is. And I guess I mostly feel like I'm glad that it's great for them, but I'm not convinced at least right now that it would be great for me. Um, but 
I don't know. <laughs> it's not for everybody. Yeah. You know, I don't, yeah. I mean, people don't have to have kids. Yeah. I've had, uh, you know, you have conversations, I, though I do get excited if I'm being honest. Like I mentioned Chelsea, like I found out she had a baby. I get so excited for people when they have a baby because it really is uh, a lot of fun. And mm -hmm. it really is like this big love. Mm -hmm. And like, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, but you certainly can live like a full life without having kids. Yeah. I mean, big love is great, but I think there are a lot of different forms of it and different ways to find it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you can, like you say, if you're somebody who, um, loves to make art, you know, not having children makes it easier to focus on that. Yeah. You know, like having yeah. to support a family. I go through that. Like yeah. you, know, you have very limited amounts of time. I mean, I, I wouldn't trade it, but it's the, it's the truth. Yeah. You know, like writing books takes a long time. It does. Like a lot of personal energy. It does. Yeah. And like, and teaching does too. So it's like both parts of my career feel, um, very demanding and, and just very unbounded. Like you always have homework like for both of them. Um, and they just kind of expand to fill like however much space you can possibly give them in your life. Um, and I find them both really satisfying and rewarding and I'm having a good time. So I'm not in a terrible rush to like change that. Um, but who knows? What about like how you do the work and fit it into your teaching life? I mean, teaching's a pretty great when it comes to being a writer, I think in terms mm -hmm. of symbiosis between like day job responsibilities yeah. and the writing stuff, it fits together. The schedule tends to be semi-friendly. One feeds the other to a certain extent, but like, how do you do it? Do you, are you up early in the morning? Are you working late at night? Yeah, I don't write every day and I never really have, even when I was in writing programs and going to grad school. Um, it tends to be more something that happens in bursts. Um, with my current job, I, mostly focus on teaching during the school year. And then in the summers, I, I do pretty much all of my writing. So I try to do residencies. Um, and I tend to be really productive there and I just do as much as I can. What does it mean when you go summers. to, a, when you go to a residency, cause I've never done one. Mm -hmm. Like, are you out of cell phone range? I guess it depends. Um, I mean, like, is it, is it yeah. tech free? Like I'm trying to like, cause it feels like it enforces a certain level of concentration. Yeah. I mean, it could be if that was the experience you wanted to have. Um, and I've been at residencies where like I didn't get great cell service or where I was at, um, Yato last summer and like you had to ask for the Wi-Fi password. So they, they didn't just give it to you up front cause it was up to you to decide if you kind of wanted to unplug or you, you feel you... ashamed when you're like, what's the Wi-Fi password? <laughs> yeah. I mean a little, yeah, but I needed, I mean, for research that I was doing for the project I was working on, like I needed internet access. Um, so I, I don't really unplug, but I think that option is definitely available. Um, and what are you working on now? May I ask? Yeah, it's, I'm working on a novel but it's still very much in the works. It's kind of, I, I haven't quite figured it out yet, 
but how many like how many page of words do you have down um i have a full draft that i don't like and so now i'm kind of tearing it apart and then stitching it back together again and making some changes and figuring out what exactly it's supposed to be so you'll go through the whole school year teaching not really working yeah i'll kind of take notes and jot down ideas and then kind of store things up like save it all up and then spend it <laughs> during the summer. But that, that seems nice. It gives you time to like incubate. Yeah, it does. Um, and I'm not really, I've never really been a writer who can just write without having any idea what it is they're creating. And, um, I like to be, I like to have a plan. Like I'm a nerdy, good student, like planner type. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to stick to the plan. I will honestly like probably abandon it or it will change but i like to feel like i i at least know what i'm starting to make um so like not like a detailed outline but yeah a sketch or... just an idea like of some images or plot points and a sense of how they might fit together um and a few possible scenes that i've envisioned um and so yeah it's kind of useful to have that time to like brainstorm and just imagine and then get it all out over the summer. What does your reading life look like? I mean, I know you're reading for class and prep mm-hmm. and everything else. Is that pretty much it? Or do you, are you a disciplined reader, especially during the school year as you're trying to kind of feed your head? Yeah, it's still mostly for class, but, um, with teaching creative writing and workshops, I can like, if there's a book that I'm dying to read, I can just put it on the syllabus and then I have to read it and my students have to read it. And I'm guaranteed a group of like starry eyed younger people to discuss it with. So it's kind of great. What kind of teacher are you? Are you like, uh, like, (laughs) what do you, what do you think your students would say about you? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, typically they say pretty nice things. (laughs) Um, but I, I don't know. I like to be very thorough and I like to kind of give everything like all that I've got. And so, I think I often feel like, (laughs) I don't know. I spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and I get kind of sad if I feel like they don't value (laughs) like what I'm expending on them. Um, but they're mostly very sweet and, um, like you get to watch them grow. It's like, it's a space in my life where I feel like I'm able to be nurturing and encouraging of younger people, which is maybe another reason why I don't feel this burning need to have a child. Cause I, I feel like I'm already doing work that allows me to involve myself meaningfully in younger people's lives. And, um, it's, I really like it. I think they like me. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, you've ever seen that. So I used to teach college and there's like that site rate my teachers or oh, whatever. Yeah. That's like, that's a, that's a sinkhole to yeah. fall into. Yeah, you're like, oh my it God. is. Some of them, I was, I was, I did pretty well, but there were some critics, you know, there are always going to be people who, mm-hmm. um, I used to have it all saved somewhere just cause some of it was actually pretty funny, but, yeah. um, do you ever get dogged online? Do you like read your own reviews as a teacher? Um, I haven't done that for a while. I did, <laughs> I did it once and they used to have the chili pepper thing where yeah. like the hot teacher no, gets a little chili. I was like, wait, I didn't get and, enough chili yeah. peppers. What's wrong with me? I don't know if they still do that, but yeah. Um, there was a time when I looked at that. I don't, but I mean on the, even on the more structured, like the evaluations that the university makes the students do, they'll say things like, 
she's got great fashion sense or like they comment on like things that are kind of beside the point. <laughs> right. Well, you know, they're college students. Yeah. They've got a lot on their minds. Yeah. Um, you were recently named a five under 35. What does that yeah. mean? Who does the national book foundation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so the they, national book foundation and they have, um, so the people who select the five are, um, previous winners or finalists for the national book award. And so, um, my book was chosen by Brandon Hobson. Um, and like, how does that happen? I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's really <laughs> kind of, it's insane. Um, cause I feel like my book is published because it won a contest. It won the Iowa short fiction award. And so Carmen Maria Machado was the contest judge. Who has, she's been on the show. Yeah. I listened to her episode. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan. Um, and so the book exists because she liked it. Um, it wasn't like somebody had to like pitch it and sell it. And like, there, there wasn't a whole lot of consideration of marketability in like the choice to publish the book. It was just Carmen chose it and then it got published. And yeah. then with the five under 35, it's like Brandon chose it. And now it has this honor attached to it. And so sometimes I feel like, um, I guess it's, it's just mind blowing that basically like two people liked my book <laughs> and that's, that's what did it. Like that's, that's why it exists. Change your life. Two people. Yeah. That's awesome. So mm -hmm. how do you, how do you find out when you are named one of the five writers under 35 who, you know, has been deemed to be a, you know, a young writer of great promise basically. Yeah. Like, how did you find out? I got a phone call and I was at a meeting for work and I saw this, um, the like transcription of the voicemail and it said like calling from the national book foundation. And in my head it was just like, Oh, this is some scammy, like it's not the national book <laughs> foundation. Right, right. It's like some kind of scammy, like bizarro national book foundation. And they want me to like pay them money to do some bullshit, but then no, it was the real one. <laughs> and, um, they were very nice and they, they called me and told me that I got this thing and I don't know, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it. I just feel so like just a regular kind of boring, <laughs> normal person. And like, all of a sudden, like I'm doing a podcast and people are going to listen to me talking and like care what I have to say. And it's like, no, no, there's been a terrible mistake. <laughs> like sooner or later, you're all going to realize there's been a terrible mistake. <laughs> I'm just a girl from Amish country. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, no. Um, how are you all falling for it? Like New York times, you, you're just, you've all been duped. You're it's like so imposter syndrome. Gullible. It is definitely, I've, I think I've had a lifelong case of imposter syndrome being among writers and feeling like I like, what am I doing here? <laughs> like sooner or later, they're all going to find out like the emperor has no clothes, but you know what? That's common. I know. I think it really is. It's common. Which is why like, I'm glad we're talking about it because I think if you had asked most of the other people who have occupied the writing world with me, even the people who I thought seemed so confident and so assured of their own brilliance and like that 
inevitability of their success, I think they would probably have said the same thing, that they felt kind of horrified and just scared and like, like someone's going to discover me. That's yeah. Like just scandalously normal and unremarkable. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, but also talented and, and clearly hardworking, um, and deserving, like, you know, like good luck has to happen. Like it's, it's hard work obviously. And, um, years of labor and you know, all of it, but you also got to catch a break every once in a while. And, uh, you know, I think when it happens, you just have to appreciate it. Yeah. Right. Yes, absolutely. I, yeah, I agree. Well, congratulations. Thank it's you. Exciting. Thank and, you. Uh, it's nice to get a chance to meet you here, um, at the dawn of a very promising career. Thanks. I hope so. Maybe I hope it's not all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. We've just caught uh, Ashley as she's peaked. Plum- yeah, I'm just about to plummet. <laughs> well, yeah. best of luck to you. Thank you. All right. That's Ashley Wurzbacher. Her story collection, her debut story collection, is called Happy Like This, available now from the University of Iowa Press. Track that one down. You can find Ashley online at ashleywurzbacher.com. And uh, I don't think there's any social, right? Didn't she just say that? I can't remember. I'm looking online. I don't. I can't see it. I can't find her. But she is at ashleywurzbacher.com. The story collection, again, is called Happy Like This. Go get your copy. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music at the top of the show. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Explain yourself. If you want to support this program... Uh, there's a couple of great ways to do that. You can uh, support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's always nice. Throw a few bucks in the hat. Or uh, if you're short on cash and you just want to say something nice, you can review the show and rate the show. Rate and review the show over at iTunes. That helps. Don't forget about the Other People app. This program has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is free. It's available wherever you get your apps. So what do I got coming up here? Ooh. I've got a conversation that you're going to really enjoy next. Uh, it is Adam Mansback. He's an author of several books, but uh, most notably, he's the author of a children's book for adults called Go the Fuck to Sleep. You've probably heard of it. Remember it? Have you Remember this? Go the Fuck to Sleep? It's like a classic now, essentially. Millions of copies have sold, and he wrote the book in about 15 minutes. And I had a very interesting conversation with him about all of it. He also writes literary fiction. He screenwrites. He does all sorts of different things. So I think you're going to find it fascinating. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. (laughs) 